And greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. I pray that you are blessed this Sabbath. It is good to be back. I haven't seen many of you since before Sukkot. I hope you enjoyed the um, Sukkot teachings that we put up. Quite a, a collection there to keep you busy. And... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. True blessings to you all. Greet one another in the chat. Greet one another in the chat as you arrive and we jumped onto a new stream. I hope you can find us here today. We are embarking on quite an adventure, the book of Isaiah. And this series is entitled Isaiah, the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel, 66 chapters. Now, Bear with me with this, because today's the introduction. Today's the introduction. And um, if we've got 54 Torah portions in a year, in a year, and we've got 66 books, and I started digging into this and studying this, and quite honestly, I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got so many notes. I've got so, there's so much material here. It's historical. It's prophetic. There's allegory. There's metaphor. It's literal. Which way do you want to go? I mean, it is historic, but it's historic in the days of the kings. It's historic in the actual time of Isaiah. But then it's historic in the time of Yeshua. Do you realize the book of Isaiah is the most quoted of the prophets in the New Testament? It's everywhere. It's historic in that context, but that's prophecy too. You see, it's a multi-level prophecy. So I've got 66 books. Well, let's just say I do, you know, it takes me two weeks to do a chapter. Well, is that, what, what, what is that? Is that like 132 weeks worth of material? That's over two years. I'm like, well, we're going to have to have some serious endurance to get through this. I don't know if you can stick with me. I don't think I can stick with myself for that long. So I can't do it like verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which is initially how I thought I would approach this, this um, teaching series. So then I'm, I thought, well, hang on a minute. Well, how are the, how are the Torah portions taught? Well, you know, sometimes in a Torah portion, you'll have, what, five to nine chapters. And you're not actually hitting on every single verse. You're looking at something thematic within the text that is being presented for that week. And that's the beauty of teaching the Torah portions year in and year out, is that you can hit the same section of scripture, the same Torah portion, and teach a different theme of it the following year. And you've got endless amounts of material. So I think for us to truly get the most out of this study, not get bogged down, in 132 <laughs> teachings or more, or more, um, we're going to have to look at this more as a thematic study. We're going to have to look at this as the way that we would teach the Torah portions. So all that to say this, this is Isaiah, the fifth gospel, the introduction. But it is the introduction part A. 
So I'm even going to take two weeks just to introduce you to what we're about to do so that we can be on the same page together. So I am truly, truly excited about teaching this. Um, it's a massive project. It's something that I've always wanted to do. The book of Yeshayahu in the Hebrew, Isaiah, is a book that I often turn to in my life. When I'm going through various trials, tribulations, I find great comfort in it, always have done, as I have the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Yirmiyahu, often go there, unless I'm feeling extremely melancholy, which does happen, and then, of course, I'll just go see my friend Job. But these are the places that I often find myself reading and reading and reading, and over the summer, I ended up in Isaiah, and I'm like, oh, I need to teach this, I need to teach this. And then I felt convicted to teach it, and so here we are. So jump with me, Isaiah, 66 whopping chapters, and today is the introduction. It is so good to be back. My voice is not going to be at its strongest today, so bear with me if I do have to clear my throat. You know, it's like riding a bicycle, getting back, being mic'd up in studio before the cameras, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be doing big jumps with a great skill set today. So please be patient with me as I get back on the horse, a little rusty, and like I say, got to get the strength back in the voice. So let's first look at a few things in this introduction of Yeshayahu in the Hebrew, Isaiah, and um, look at the date and the occasion of when this was written. Now, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, ministered for more than 40 years from around 740 before the Common Era to after 701 before the Common Era. Are we going to be doing camera switching today? Splendid. Just got to make sure I know where I'm looking as well. So, Now, you, in your own time, I would fully suggest that you read ahead each week, just like you do with the Torah portions. And what's really nice is you can cross-reference this period of the prophecy with 2 Kings chapter 15, 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 33. They're the same period. So if you're reading and coming along in this study, you want to spend time in 2 Kings, Melachim Bet, chapter 15, and you want to spend time in 2 Chronicles between the 26th and the 33rd chapter. Because Isaiah was a contemporary of the other prophets. He was a contemporary of Elijah, he was a contemporary of Elisha, and Hosea, and Micah. So these prophets, they were all banging around at the same time, and they were banging up, up against a lot of the same issues. Now, what we had in the time of this period is Israel had already come into, obviously, the promised land, and they had been there for around 700 years. So we've come out of Egypt, we've crossed over, we've been in the land for 700 years at this point, and things are not going well. They're under the book of the law, 
Of course, the Book of the Covenant was breached way back at the Golden Calf. They are under the schoolmaster. They have been given judges. And then they said they wanted a king. So then they were given kings. But then the kings turned about out to be wicked. And then the kingdom split. And then the ten northern tribe, tribes went up north. Ten Israel, collectively known as Ephraim, which later became the ten lost tribes scattered into the nations never to return. And all of ten Israel's kings were wicked as hell. All of them. Whereas Judah had a smattering of good kings and a lot of bad kings. And this is where we're at in the narrative historically. For their first 400 years in Canaan, of course, the Shoftim, the judges ruled Israel. Then, for about 120 years, three kings ruled Israel specifically. And who are those three kings, everybody? Saul, David, and Solomon. But in about 917, before the Common Era, Israel has a civil war, and you have the two-house split, which is a paradigm shift in our understanding. Once you understand the two houses of Israel, that really frames the whole context for your biblical understanding of the prophecies. If you don't understand the split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and that there's a distinction between all Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. If you don't understand that, then you're forever going to stumble in your interpretation of Scripture. That is primary. All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. There are 12 tribes which make up Israel. Ten of the northern tribes were scattered into the nations to become mixed up into the pagan nations, and they would be collectively brought back by Moshiach. That's the purpose of Messiah, to bring back the 12 tribes of Israel into the land. Not one tribe, not two tribes, but all 12 tribes, and 12 tribes collectively makes Israel. But at this point in the narrative, we've got the 10 northern tribes split. There's been a civil war, and the two house split. 10 Israel, the northern kingdom, I'll often call them 10 Israel, or Ephraim. 10 Israel had some 18 kings. And all of them were wicked as hell. Wicked as hell. They were bad and they were rebellious. Whereas Judah has some 11 kings during this period before Isaiah Yeshiyahu's ministry. And some, some were good and some were bad. Now, the Assyrians, the Assyrians, they took Israel captive in about 721 before the Common Era. And I, I often say this, and I use this just, just as a word picture. Um, if something on your truck broke, okay? If something on your truck broke, where would you go on your truck to fix your truck? 
to the place where it broke, correct? So, where did the kingdom of Israel break? Meaning, when the Assyrians came in to take Israel captive, where did they go? Where did the kingdom break? It broke down in the Galilee. That's where Assyria came in and broke the kingdom and took the captives captive. So when the kingdom's about to be fixed through the coming of the Mashiach, as prophesied by Isaiah, where do you think the Mashiach, the Messiah, would go first to fix the kingdom? Would he go to the Galilee? Did he go to the Galilee? Does the New Testament absolutely, in very clear detail, tell us that he goes to the exact area where the Assyrians broke the kingdom? Because to fix it, you have to go to its point of origin of destruction. Common sense. So that kind of frames where we're going, because the Assyrians took Israel captive from the Galilee down in 721 before the Common Era. Now, we have done a study on Ezekiel in the past, and you know that Ezekiel isn't laid out in chapters. It's laid out in scrolls. But in what is called, in the King Jimmy, the fourth chapter, we see the prophecy where Ezekiel is told to lie on his side, and it's a prophecy about Israel's exile and return. For 390 years in Ezekiel chapter 4 verse 5. But we know from the Torah that the punishment would be times 7, wouldn't it? According to Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 18. So 390 years times 7 means the punishment of exile for the ten northern tribes, commonly called Ephraim, would be approximately, bear with me, 2,730 years in captivity, which means our exile ended in around 200, 2,010 of the common era. How many of you since 2010 have woken up to the reality that you are Israel? Some of you have even opened up to the reality that you're of the kingdom of Judah. Some of you have woken... I mean, we are starting to wake up to our identity of Torah, Messiah, Sabbath-keeping, Israel, all 12 tribes... We're a multi-ethnic group being gathered together in the last days. And most of us came into this since the early 2000s. Torah and Messiah and the context that we are not religious folk. We are the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all 12 tribes being gathered together. This happened because the prophecies tell us that our exile would end around 2010 of the common era. Now, you have to take into account that we should be witnessing then this healing since 2010. 
And this period of healing will extend to about 2038 if Moshiach tarries that long. If, and that's a big if, Moshiach tarries that long. Because it says in the scripture, if you do not shema, obey me. And it's mentioned four times, that phrase, if you do not shema, obey me, it's mentioned four times in reference to seven times the punishment in Leviticus chapter 26. So seven times four is 28, meaning in verses 14, 18, 21, and 27. So what we have is we have this 28-year window of patience, of long-suffering, where Moshiach is waiting for the redemption, waiting for his people. I believe, and this is just my opinion, and I've told you why I believe this now, I believe that we are in that 28-year period of his long-suffering and waiting. That's my opinion, and you don't have to agree with me. But that's how I frame the scripture right now in my life. I believe that we are in that period. And I believe a third of it has already passed, and two-thirds remain, and then we are done. We're done. So, there you have it. I've laid my belief system to frame it for you. But I also want to make this a fun adventure and not get bogged down in 66 chapters over two and a half years and have be droning on like some messianic teacher that I used to be. Okay, because the scripture is alive. It is full of vibrance and fun. And it is fun to be in the word together. It truly is. It's invigorating. It's the best time of my life is to be in the word. And the best time of my life is to be in the word, not alone when I can become melancholy at home, but with you, with you interacting one another together. So I do want to make life application out of this teaching. So each and every week, I'm going to have a theme of mastery. That's going to be my theme. So bear with me, and I hope you're going to enjoy it with me, because I want to come to some mastery in my life over some areas of weakness that I'm aware of in myself, and I want to better myself, and I hope you want to better yourself too. So each week I'm going to look at the interpretation, the application, and the pattern. You can write that down if you want. The interpretation, the application, and the pattern, because there are specific keys to coming out from the natural man and ascending into or attaining, I should say, the ascended self-mastery. And that's what I would want in my life, and I hope that's what you would want in your life, is attaining ascended self-mastery. Because if you can't master yourself, then what are you going around pointing out about that brother or sister's problems? 
We have to get the whopping planks out of our own eyes. That's all we can do. I can't change you. I can only change me. I can't change this world. But by changing me, I can change this world. Because if we all change ourselves, then we will change the way we interact and face the world. So, we're going to look at interpretation, application, and pattern. Bear with me here. I've got a lot, of, lot, lot to figure out. It's been a while. Okay. So, I have actually come, believe it or not, to want to work on the patterns in my life. And like I say, I hope that you will want to join with me on this study on working on the patterns. Because there are patterns in our life. We all have them. We all have, you can ignore it. Or you can start to look at the traits in your life, the patterns in your life. If we do choose to ignore them, then they will unwittingly master us. If we discover them and we heal them, then we can attain ascended self-mastery and become the prophets. Because that's all the prophets were. All the prophets were were men and women who recognized their patterns, they discovered them, they healed them, and they attained ascended self-mastery so they could communicate and interface with the world in their time, and they affect massive change, massive change. We can become the prophets. The New Testament tells us that. But we can only do that when we have attained ascended self-mastery. There is patterns in our life. There is a pattern in our life. And it's particularly visible in our mistakes and in our failures. The controlling mechanism of this pattern is what? One word. Anybody? Character. 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 The controlling mechanism in this is character. It's interesting, the etymology of character in the ancient Greek refers to an engraving stamp or instrument, because your character is deeply engraved or stamped into you, is it not? So to change something that is so deeply ingrained and stamped into you means you have to ascend to self-mastery. So character then is something that is so deeply and ingrained and stamped within us that it compels us. You often hear me talking about compelled performance. That's all this world does, is attempt to compel you to perform. And that's all that Yahweh is trying to do, is attempting you to compel us to perform. We have to literally choose in this life 
who this day we shall serve. Choose life or choose death. Mystery Babylon is spending every waking moment attempting to compel your performance to perform for Mystery Babylon. And on the other hand, Yahweh is attempting through the Holy Spirit to compel you to perform to his word. That's conviction. And they both work on your character. Mystery Babylon is working on your character through fear, intimidation, coercion, and force. Yahuwah is working on your character through love, mercy, compassion, and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the healing of the nations. But it is all compelled performance. Our life is literally just, we're here just to be, perform. We are here to perform. That's it. It's compelled performance. That's it. Everything is compelled performance. Either for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of earth. It's that simple. And when you see that, you go, oh my goodness. The book of Isaiah is going to open that all up. But this is something that will impact and change our life today. So character is something that is a stamping instrument that is so deeply ingrained within us that it compels us through compelled performance to act in certain ways beyond our awareness. Beyond our awareness. Let's look at the siege here. The siege. Because we're going to see through Isaiah... This siege language. Jerusalem is under siege right now as Isaiah is called into this ministry. And as we will discover in Isaiah, Yeshayahu, this siege is literal. Of course it's literal. But metaphorically, we are under siege as well. Literally and metaphorically. But we are the temple of the living Elohim. First Corinthians, Paul speaks of that. And is not our temple, is not our Jerusalem under constant siege from outside influence? When we're under siege, we need to come to a place of appreciating the siege as an opportunity to better ourselves. A siege, a conflict, is an opportunity for us to actually hone our skills of self-mastery. It's actually an opportunity to toughen yourself up. It's like exercising. And something that we do not exercise very often, that we need to exercise more, is the muscle of gratitude. Because if we exercise the muscle of gratitude, then that really opens up the key to self-mastery. But there's another muscle that is exercised more than most muscles in this world that shuts down self-mastery. And that muscle is covetousness and envy. Looking at others, 
Instagram, Facebook, their perfect life, their, their models, their, everything's shiny and filtered, and that's our world today. And that produces another fruit. So really to unlock the scriptures, we need to have what? Gratitude. And we need to look to those that have less than us and when we do that, then we can unlock our self-mastery. But if we're looking the other way, covetousness and envy, then that locks up self-mastery. You can never attain it. Does that make sense? So I want to set the, the stage for us. This is the introduction. There's no point us going into the book of Isaiah if we're, 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 we're putting filters on our Instagram and we're, you know... My, my daughter started horse riding again last week, and um, we'd taken a period of time off. And the, the lady that owns the barn, she's a fabulous lady. I've known her for years, you know. And she came up to my daughter, and she said, she said to her, how come you are so beautiful, and your father is so ugly? And you should have seen my daughter's face. And I was like, oh, that's Judy. Don't worry about it. I just love that she says that. Because she just like comes right out with the truth of it, you know. She was just teasing them. But my daughter's there. Like, oh. I'm like, oh, it's totally, it's gorgeous, you know. Unfiltered. Okay. And I would always, my mother would always say to me, you know, you are big enough and ugly enough to know better. So it doesn't offend me when people say that. It makes me laugh. It's okay. We want to be unfiltered. We truly do. <laughs> anyway, let's look at this siege language. I digress there. Bear with me. Siege language. Siege. We're under siege in our relationships. We're under siege in our culture. Your body is under siege. Your mind is under siege. We're under siege. So how do we frame ourselves each and every day? We're under siege at work. We're under siege in our marriages. We're under siege in our relationships with our children, with our grandchildren. We are under siege with the world. But these are all opportunities for self-mastery. Isaiah was under siege, but he used it as an opportunity. That is what made him a prophet. And you have the power to be the prophets in this generation. If you will bear with me and trek with me and join with me and we will do this together. This is going to life change our lives. I truly believe it in this time, in this age. I want you to be as inspired as I am inspired. Realize this. Yeshayahu Isaiah knew you can never change people's minds by arguing. You can never change people's minds by lecturing. You can never change people's minds by cajoling them. All of which makes people what? more defensive their guard goes up they stick to their guns they're not going to you're not going to change them he wasn't going to change the minds of the kings 
he had to take a different trajectory. Isaiah teaches us that people are naturally stubborn and resistant to influence. In Genesis, Bereshit, chapter 49, verse 17. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heels, so that its rider shall fall backward. Well, what's that got to do with Isaiah? Right now, I'm going to teach you what the horse and rider is. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. We are talking about self-mastery, about becoming the prophets. And the only way that you can do that is mastering the horse and the rider. Emotions and thinking. Emotions and thinking. What do I mean? Dan here is a metaphor for stubbornness that gets in the way of your success. The serpent bites the emotional you. You get offended. You get hurt. You get wounded. And then Pride and stubbornness materialize and it ruins your thinking, yourself, your creativity. And then fear comes in and your IQ drops considerably that you can no longer communicate effectively. The kings of Judah in the context of the book of Isaiah, all responded differently to the siege. They all responded differently based upon their inner horse and rider, based upon their emotions and thinking. One example is King Ahaz. Ahaz, his response to the war between Judah and northern Israel and Syria, which was known as the Syrio-Ephraimite crisis, because 10 Israel had joined with Assyria to come down and lay siege on Judah, the kingdom of Judah. It was called the Syrio-Ephraimite crisis, okay? So he allowed opposition to rise up within himself. He allowed this conflict of his emotions and thinking to rise up, which caused him to respond with fear and unbelief. Ahaz's response to the siege was one of fear and unbelief. His thinking and his emotion became so tangled up with one another that he refused Yahuwah's sign. Yahuwah gave him a sign. Instead, because he let all of his emotions and thinking, he wasn't able to gain self-mastery. Ahaz was not able to gain self-mastery. His emotions and thinking became all tangled up together that Yahweh tried to intercede into his life and give him a sign. And he wasn't able to see the sign. 
Instead, he rejected the sign and looked for a political solution. How many of you have come under siege in your life and Yahweh's tried to come into your life and, and bring somebody into your life or bring an opportunity into your life or there was a flood and a boat comes by and you've heard the story and there you are sitting on the roof and you reject the boat because you think a helicopter's going to come in and say, but he sent you the boat. You've had all the op, but you can't see it. And you reject what's right before you because you're looking for a political solution. You're looking for a material solution instead of a miracle. And then you wonder why you can't move the mountain into the sea. Because our emotions, Mystery Babylon, is compelling us to be afraid every single day. Mystery Babylon is compelling us to perform to the material world of fear and mayhem and chaos. Whereas Yahweh is compelling us to perform to self-mastery and ascendancy so that we can walk on water and calm the chaos and clearly clearly communicate as prophets to a lost world. The kings of Judah all responded differently based upon their inner horse and rider emotions and thinking. You see, change only comes by the written word because the written word, brethren, is the law of notice. It's the law of notice. I speak of this often. I don't care if you don't believe in the Bible. I don't care if you didn't read it. Neither does Yahuwah. If you go into a public park and you pass the notice board and it's got on that notice board, notice! Illegal to camp between these hours. And you didn't read it? And you decide to camp there? Guess what? You're in violation of that no and you can be arrested. Well, I didn't read it. Too bad. It's called the law of notice. Well, I didn't receive it. Too bad. It's called the law of notice. We operate on the law of notice because that's how Yahuwah operates. I don't care whether you read it. I know that you received it. I don't care whether you perform to it. Not my issue. Not Yahuwah's issue. We operate on the law of notice. The written word is the law of notice. Write down your dreams. Write down your hopes. Write down your strengths. Write down your weaknesses. Because the written law of notice brings change from your thoughts to the material world. It's a manifestation. It's a manifestation. Why do you think the prophets always had a scribe with them? Because they would take their thoughts and they would get their scribe to produce the law of notice. That's it. And it's an art form. It's an art form. We must produce this art form in this world of chaos. 
because it's the only thing that will allow you to walk on water. The law of notice is the manifestation. It makes you a prophet. It makes you a prophetic voice of your own destiny because it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Somebody that says, oh, this is killing me. Oh, this is self-fulfilling prophecy. So, oh, I'm so sick of this. I'm so self-fulfilling prophecy. I wake up in the morning and I speak. I speak positive affirmations over myself, over those I love, over those I pray for. I speak it because it is so. I write it down. I love writing. Exodus chapter 15 verse 1. Then sang Moshe and the children of Israel this song unto Yahuwah and spake, saying, I will sing unto Yahuwah, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he hath thrown into the sea. Now the sea is an allegory, a metaphor for either self-mastery or absolute mayhem depending upon the horse and the rider, your emotions and your thinking. The sea, Yahusha had total self-mastery. Therefore, he spoke to the storm and he was able to walk on water. Jonah, he was double-minded between his emotions and his thinking. Therefore, the sea caused mayhem and chaos that he became swallowed up by it. The horse and rider is thrown into the sea. We have got to find the optimal balance of thinking and emotion by casting our horse and rider emotion and thinking into the sea of glass that's spoken of in Revelation because that's where we all want to stand. Do we not? Isn't that the end game? Self-mastery under Mashiach standing on the sea of glass. That's the goal. That is what Yahuwah is compelling you to perform to. Will you take the challenge? Because that's what the book of Isaiah is going to teach us how to do. This is why I want to do the introduction. This is the purpose of the book of Isaiah, to teach you and I how to become the prophets of this generation in this last 28 years. That's what I'm saying. You don't have to believe me. I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. I'm just saying, that's my math. And those of you who know how dreadful at math I am, you can take what I just said with a massive pinch of salt. You see, there's the caveat. <laughs> but it's still my opinion. But I'm not going to make my opinion your burden. Don't make your opinion my burden either. Okay? So, I'm rusty, aren't I? Like a rusty nail. We can't, though. Now, often, when I say we, I'm, I'm speaking to me, because I, I, this is birthed out of reality in my life, okay? This is birthed out of my life. That's all I can do is teach the word through my life and try and communicate it through experience that we've all had together. We can't just divorce emotions from thinking. 
The two are intertwined. What we need is balance. Just like a horse and rider. Just like a horse and rider. The horse is our emotional nature. Think about it. <laughs> it is powerful. And unless it's bridled, it is the driving power of every waking moment of your day. And an unbridled horse can be extremely dangerous. So the horse is our emotional nature. It is continually compelling us, driving us. It's moving, moving. It never stops. And if you're in your emotional nature, you will never get any rest. You, you ever find those people? They just can't stop. You're just like, would you shut up? All right, you know those people that they, they can't stand silence? All the time, you're like, good grief. And you're like, are you one of those people? No, I'm teaching right now. If I'm silent, you'll hear nothing. But I love silence. I love the silence in conversation. The horse is the emotional nature. It's continually compelling us to move. Go, 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 go. It's a beast. And this beast has tremendous power. But without the rider, it cannot be guided, can it? Without your thinking, your emotions cannot be guided. It is wild. Your emotions are wild in nature, like this beast, like this horse. Unbridled passions, unbridled lusts, unbridled fantasies. The and guess what? The emotional nature is subject to vipers, by the way. It is subject to the adder in the path, the serpent, the devil. Okay, you're with me? The, this is taught throughout the scripture. And we're like, well, what is it? We just gloss over it. The emotional nature, an unbridled horse, will continually lead you into trouble. Can we agree on that so far? Now, the rider, on the other hand, is the thinking self. The rider is the thinking self. And through training and practice, it holds the reins and guides the emotional nature. It guides the horse. And it transforms this powerful, carnal energy into something of immense beauty and power and productivity to bring about transformational change. Think about it. I mean, have you ever seen, I mean, I, I get to see it twice a week, English riding. And some of you are like, oh, that's, you know, that's racist against Western riding. No, I, I mean, I like English riding, okay? And I'm allowed to. I like Western riding too, but something special about English riding, the way they handle the horse, it's majestic. It truly is. You don't have to hold on to the horn. There is no horn. 
I mean, it's all in the strength, is in the, in the legs, and, and it's just, it's amazing. And it's this transformational power of taking the wild energy of emotion and mastery with thinking, and together it turns into something majestic, change. But one without the other is useless. Think about it. Without the rider, there is no directed movement or purpose. Without thinking, the emotions are just going wild. Without the rider, the horse has got no direction or purpose. It'll literally go round in circles. No directional purpose. This is the man with all the artistic energy. And you meet these people. They've got all this artistic energy. They've got all this energetic vision. But they can never actually get it to produce anything. They're the dreamers of the world. And it's great to dream. But don't dream and not turn your dreams into reality. Because that's just a bunch of emotion. They've got all the energy, but they don't have the productivity. Without the horse, no in it, there's no energy. So you can't just be a great thinker either. You have to have the emotion as well. Without the horse, there is no energy, meaning there's insufficient power. A rider holding the reins too tightly, one who's afraid to take risks or unleash the energy, that's not going to be any good either, is it? So we cannot be slaves to energy, but we must accept it. And you always hear me talking about acceptance. We accept the energy, and then we allow it to flow through us. That's what makes a really good rider, is they accept all of that energy and power from, from the horse, emotion, and then they allow it to flow flow through their minds, their thinking, and then they have something amazing. Now, if Israel had considered their actions beforehand and brought that thinking to the situation of the siege before they made a decision, then things would have been so much different for the history of Israel would have been so much different for the kings of Israel. But these kings that are the focus of Isaiah, their emotions and their thinking, the horse and the rider, were not in sync. The only one that was able to attain self-mastery for a while was who? Huh? Hezekiah. Thank you. Hezekiah was the only king out of these kings that attained the self-mastery for a while. But then he became like a pompous English show jumper. He became so pompous and full of himself on that horse that something happened. And what was it? Leprosy. Which then brings us all the way forward into the New Testament and like I told you, Isaiah is the prophet that is quoted more times than any other prophet in the New Testament. And Yahushua went to the Galilee first to heal the broken kingdom. And what was the first thing that he went about doing? Healing who? What type of people? 
No, not the sick. Lepers. Why? Because he's telling you about Hezekiah. He's going back to this story of what we're about to go into. The whole reason lepers were healed in the New Testament is because of the sin of Hezekiah. And I'll unlock that for you as we go forward into this teaching. It is huge. This book of Isaiah is huge. Anyway, I've got so much to do. This is the intro. Hey, my goodness. Here's another metaphor for you. The ostrich. Think about this. The ostrich may look good, right? They look good. Those ostriches, they think, man, I'm looking good today. I'm one good-looking ostrich. Have you seen the size of my eggs? They're massive. That was my impersonation of, I don't know, an ostrich. But they think they're good-looking, okay? Yet they are a stupid bird, a foolish bird. The Bible says the ostrich has no Holy Spirit, no wisdom whatsoever. Job chapter 39, verse 17. Yahweh has caused that one, the ostrich, to forget wisdom. Oh, that's the proud English show jumper. Oh, I look so good. Look how big my eggs are. Look how big my feathers and my breasts are. Oh, my goodness. But you've got no wisdom. All you care about is the out, is Instagram. That's all you care about is all your filters on Instagram. Okay? It's not reality. That doesn't even exist. Nobody looks like that. There is no wisdom to be found there. He Has he not given her a share in understanding? At the time she lifts herself up on high, she scorns the horse and the rider. If you're so interested in outward appearance and filters, then that shows a lack of wisdom and you'll never gain self-mastery over your emotions with your thinking. That's what happened to the other three kings in the time of Isaiah. They were like ostriches. They were so invested in their own plumage, their jewels, their prestige, their robes, that even when the siege was on them, they were strutting around like ostriches, so full of their power, prestige, and plumage that even when Yahweh gave them signs, they didn't have the wisdom to be able to interpret the signs. So they looked for political solutions. Brethren, this is our world today and our leaders today. It's all a facade. They don't really look like that. They're not really like that. It's a facade. It's all a mask. And they're so into the outward, there is no wisdom. Therefore, they don't see the signs of the days, the signs of the times. And they're looking for political solutions to all of the problems of this world. But they're not going to come through political solutions. They are going to come by supernatural prophecy and the signs that Yahuwah is giving to his prophets, you and me. If we have the self-mastery and we can ascend from our emotions by being a horse and rider. Beware. 
if you do become a horse and rider, not to become proud in your plumage because then you'll fall like Hezekiah because he did become the horse and rider. But then he began to look at his plumage and he became the ostrich and he became the leper. Oh, there's so much. There's so much. The ostrich may look good, yet it is a foolish bird. It lacks wisdom. It orientates its worldview on outward things, and it is the scorn of both the emotional and thinking self, the horse and the rider. We'll finish up here with a few important details. Let's look at the name, Isaiah, Yeshayahu. Isaiah, now the Isaiah scroll is found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in 1947, of course, in the Qumran Caves. There is the Isaiah scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it follows the short form of the name that was popular in the time of Yeshua, the short form of Yahusha. So in the time of Yeshua, Yahusha, in the first century, they were short, they were using Aramaic or short forms of the Hebrew. Okay? So Yeshua being the short form of Yahusha or Yahushua, depending on how you want to pronounce that. Yeshiyah styled as Yod Shin Ayin Yod Hey is the short form. His true name is Yeshiyahu, Yeshiyahu, which is styled slightly differently, and you'll see it's got the additional wa on the end. It's styled Yod Shin Ayin Yod Hey Wa Yeshiyahu. So that's the long form, and the short form, it, short form is Yeshiyah without the hu. Got that? Okay, it's just a clarify what does that mean yah has saved that's what his name means yah has saved yah has saved now despite yeshiyahu isaiah's thundering chastisements and visions of looming catastrophe and looming destruction for the jewish people this book is really about comfort it really is and that's what we'll see in the latter chapters it's about comfort, and it's reflected in the famous John the Immerser, John the Baptist text of Isaiah 40, which is Nachamu, Nachamu in the Hebrew. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. London Philharmonic Orchestra does the best rendition of that, I believe, Handel's Messiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. I love that. It's fabulous. Now, Isaiah, his lifespan, he lived quite long, a 120 years. And he was killed by Manasseh, the son and successor of Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, killed Isaiah. How did he kill him? By turning him upside down spreading his legs asunder and getting a saw and cutting him in half. Outrageous behavior. He was killed by Manasseh, the son 
and successor of Hezekiah to the throne of the kingdom of Judah. It's so sobering. There's some amazing in Europe. You can you can go to a lot of the the prayer houses and cathedrals, and you'll see the depictions of Isaiah the prophet being sawn in half. And there's various ways in which they depict it, but I think the most graphically gruesome is the one that I just described to you of how he was cut asunder. Isaiah was sawn asunder on a wooden saw after the prophet had hidden himself in a hollow tree from the angry king Manasseh. Hmm. There's no guarantees in life. Except one, which is what? Persecution. In Hebrews, in the 11th chapter and the 37th verse, it actually speaks of the martyrdom of Yeshayahu Isaiah. It is written, they were stoned, the prophets, they were stoned, they were sawed in two. There you go. Were tempted, they were slain with sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. He died in the first year of Manasseh's reign, which was 3,228 to 3,283 before the Common Era. Isaiah lived 308 to 300, um, three, excuse me, 3,108, tripping on my words here, to 3,228 before the Common Era. So this places the end of his life and prophecy about 110 years before the destruction of the temple and before the Babylonian captivity, to kind of give you a time frame of when this was. But he had such tremendous vision. I mean, he foresaw. Think about this. He foresaw the destruction of the northern kingdom. The siege on Jerusalem. He foresaw the destruction of the temple. He foresaw the exile of the southern kingdom to Babylon for 70 years. I mean, he was at this epic time. Brethren, I suggest to you, if you can truly get into self-mastery and ascend out of just riding along as a horse, but become the horse and rider, on the sea of glass, you're going to see that you and I live in such times. But we have to be the horse and rider. We have to master that. And that's what this book is about. We'll finish up with 10 Israel, commonly known as Ephraim. Now, the destruction of the northern kingdom it occurred during Isaiah's lifetime, and it began in 3,205, and it ended in 3,215 with the exile of the 10 tribes. Now, this occurred in three stages. The first stage was the Assyrian invasion where the truck broke, or I should say the wagon, because there weren't trucks around there in those days. Okay, the wagon broke in Galilee, because that was the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and their northern kingdom, the king of Assyria at that time was Tiglas-Pileser, or however you pronounce it. 
Pilsner. Tigler's Pilsner. Yes, it was a Pilsner. He invented Pilsners. No, I'm kidding. Didn't even crack a smile at my English joke. Tigler's Pilsner, he came... <laughs> Sorry. Let's be serious. Could somebody help me with that pronunciation? Tigler's Pilaser. Pilaser. That's how I'm going to say it with my dreadful um, accent there. But anyway, the northern king came down into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which was the land of Galilee, which is where the ten northern tribes were first taken out into the exile. So therefore, when the exile is going to be healed and Yahushua comes, where is he first going to go? To the area where the wagon or truck broke, the Galilee. That was the first stage, of course, of the exile. The second stage of the exile was the invasion by the Assyrian king Tiglas Pileser together with King Paul in the land of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Those were the next tribes to go. And then the third, um, third um, invasion was the wholesale invasion of the land of Israel by the Assyrian king Shalmaneser followed a few years later by Sansharif. And this was in 2 Kings chapter 15 and 1 Chronicles 5. You can read that. So that's when the Assyrian invasion and the ten northern tribes were taken captive. That's very important to give you a historical frame of what we're looking at. Now Isaiah, he did prophesy during the reign of the four Judean kings. And those four kings were... Uziyahu in the Hebrew, or Uzziah, Yosem, Hebrew, or commonly called in the King Jimmy, Jotham, Ahaz, or Ahaz, and of course Hezekiah. And those four kings reigned for a total of 113 years. That's the context of the four kings right here. We'll finish up now with Hezekiah and the leprosy and the earthquake because that will kind of set the, the um, stage for us. So remember I told you, King Hezekiah, he ascended into self-mastery. He got the rider emotion and he got his thinking. He got the horse, excuse me, emotion and his thinking, the rider, to work together and he was able to do amazing things. But then, like a proud English jockey, he became so enthralled with his own plumage